Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Robin Sloan and Kat Mignolik. Robin's a writer and media inventor based in Oakland, and Kat's a partner here at YC. So this October, Robin released his second novel, Sourdough, and a couple years ago, he released his first novel, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. So before we get going, if you could take a minute to review the podcast, that'd be awesome. All right, here we go. So this is a kind of a weird jumping off point, but I listened to you on, I think it was a Mother Jones podcast, and you very briefly mentioned a machine learning experiment for the audiobook. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit longer? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, well, okay. So the background is that uh, as I've been working on these books that are in a lot of ways traditionally published, even though I have an interesting, very sort of forward thinking publisher, MCD, they still get printed on paper and, you know, sold mostly in bookstores and online and places like that. As I've been working on all that stuff for a few years now, I've also, like many people in this area, many people that I'm sure you guys know, um, I've been really interested to the to the point of sort of preoccupation with machine learning. Yeah. In particular, the creative applications, like less the super practical sort of uses and the ways that it might transform the economy and all that. And I mean, truly more like the ways that we can use some of these systems to mash and mangle and and it just interact with like words and, and pictures and sounds in different ways. So that's all preface. Uh, the audiobook. First of all, it's, it's actually interesting to know for, for folks that aren't totally plugged into the publishing industry, audiobooks are huge. Mm-hmm. It's like they're growing like gangbusters. Every time I go to a bookstore and do a reading, I ask people like, how many of you also listen to audiobooks? And I mean, truly everybody's hand goes wow. up. It's like just a, a really, really popular way to, to consume this media. So... Um, kind of in step with that, audiobook producers have gotten really serious and frankly, a little bit demanding. They're like, Hmm. "Uh, okay, Mr. Sloan, it's time to produce the audiobook. What do you got for me? You know, like what can you produce or what will you produce um, that will make this a little distinct from Hmm. just the printed book? They don't want to just do like a recitation of what's on the page. So for this book, um, Sourdough, the story happens to hinge on this sourdough starter, you know, this little funny community of microbes that you use to bake this delicious bread and in the story there's a starter with some strange properties and there's also this singing there's like this music that I don't want to give any spoilers but it it kind of helps the starter grow and it's all part of this mysterious package so I describe the music over and over in the book, I mean, like at great length, like, oh, it's so slow and sad and mysterious. And it's like <laughs> in a language that no one understands. And so come time to produce the audiobook, I was like, if you go through this whole thing in your earbuds and you never hear even a scrap of this music, like it's going to be kind of disappointing. Unfortunately, we did not have the budget to like hire the people who invent Dothraki for Game of Thrones <laughs> or Klingon or whatever. Um, so we need some other way to to like synthesize this sound that would be truly alien. Like it was, it's not any language on planet Earth. It's something fictional, something invented. So this is where it loops back around to that obsession with machine learning. Um, as I think you guys probably know, one of the things that that these models can do really well is sort of take a corpus of stuff of you know training material and extract some patterns more Mm -hmm. general patterns and then use those to generate something new but different you know not just kind of mimicry of what you put in so i i mean at at that point it actually you know it took a lot of kind of learning and and tinkering with the code actually struggling with the code is it at this point tensorflow or 
This was in, um, actually, funnily enough, this program was in uh, Lua, in Torch, okay. the original Torch, um, and totally a testament to just the power of this open source ecosystem. I mean, this was a paper um, written by one group of researchers implemented by this like rogue, mad machine learning genius <laughs> nice. in the UK, this guy named Richard Assar, who's just like, I like bow down to him and his generosity truly in like making this really wonderful and very usable implementation of this tool. It's called Sample RNN. And it takes uh, as many MP3s as you want to feed it, chops them up into bits, churns learning for days and days and days, at least on my deep learning rig. I'm sure Google would be like, got it. Yeah. Uh, for me, it took a few days. And then in the end, spits out this this really, to my ear at least, weird and, and lovely kind of generalization. You know, it tries its hardest to, to learn the essence of that music you fed it. Of course, it kind of fails because... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None of these models are actually that good yet, at least at stuff of that level of complexity. But the way in which it fails is really interesting. So that's all to say that now in this audiobook, there is just these little whispers of this fictional music in this fictional language. Um, and to my knowledge, it's the first time that like the creative output of a machine learning system has been included in an audiobook. Whoa. Oh, that's huge. <laughs> I mean, I Congrats. actually think it might be a tiny distinction, but I am all about tiny distinctions. I will like, I just want to rack up all the like tiny steps forward in the state <laughs> of the art. <laughs> Have you used the model to create anything else? Oh yeah, I mean, basically when, after you've assembled one of these rigs or a couple of them in my case, um, you feel bad about ever letting them sit idle because I mean, that's what they're for. They've got these big beefy GPUs and and it's so hard, truly, it's so hard to get all the weird little libraries and dependencies all lined up right. So having like done that, you never want to let them sit. So yeah, like I have some models that are kind of always churning on different um, bodies of text, you know, just to try to see what happens and what emerges. But there's one um, where I've thrown in all sorts of different kinds of music and sound just to see what it sounds like on the other end. And, and sure enough, I mean, sometimes what comes out is just kind of a messy garble, and sometimes it's really interesting. Can we listen to it on SoundCloud? Or uh, no, no. <laughs> you can listen to it on the Sourdough audiobook, which is available on audible.com. <laughs> uh, but no, none of the other stuff is public yet. It's not quite, it, it's, the other stuff is still at the level of, um, you know, and a lot of this stuff is, is kind of, I think, in this state. It's like that sort of frothy, fermenty, experimental, like, Ooh, there's like something there, mm. but I personally don't quite know what that something is. And so a lot of my work with this machine learning stuff is kind of trying to push through that to get to like, you know, a thing, like a thing that's actually worth sharing on the other end. And that is definitely a work in progress. Man. What were the input files? In this case, it was almost like a short circuit straight from my own inspiration to the output, because of course, you know, this all started, this project was only necessary. Um, or, you know, I only sort of thought to do it because I had written about this fictional music and this mm -hmm. fictional language in my book. And that came from my own experience listening to a kind of music that I've just long enjoyed and, and sort of thought was beautiful. It's a kind of Croatian folk singing, all a cappella, sort of a chorus of voices in sort of odd harmonies. It's called Klapa, K-L-A-P-A. And so I just had my like, you know, folder, pre-existing folder of just all the Klapa MP3s I'd ever. How did you come across Klapa in the first place? <laughs> oh, who knows? On the internet. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's, that's, that's like always answer the answer everything. to that question. Yeah. Somewhere on the internet. Um, and it just, I like for years, I just, I'd long loved it and thought it sounded lovely. And so of course it was in my brain when I'm, when I'm imagining this stuff and putting it into my book. And so then in, in a way, I mean, this might be reaching a little too far, but I kind of feel like the machine learning system and I 
did the same thing hmm. just on different tracks like input right and like the experience of listening to something followed by some munging mashing step and, and kind of abstraction step of course in mine i kind of had my response reaction to the music and the neural network had a different thing going on but then in the end we both spit out something actually something new and different um and transformed hmm. but still obviously based on that on that same input <laughs> and and did you educate yourself similarly around robotic arms you know <laughs> we we've done all these like um uh, basically technical advisor interviews for TV shows and movies and stuff. And I was researching her the other day, hoping that there was someone there. And Spike Jones explicitly said, we don't want a technical advisor because I don't want to be bounded by reality. Yeah. I just yeah, want to yeah, go yeah. for it. That's awesome. Actually, I, hmm, I wonder, I don't know if I like that or not. I think I don't actually. I, I, I think there's probably, I respect the people who are able to like dive deep and nerd out with the experts and remain unbound. Like you have to sort of take, you have to be sort of greedy and like take everything that they tell you and they'd be like, cool, gotta go, you know, <laughs> and off into the realm of imagination and, and strangeness and wonder. Um, I feel like that's, cause I feel like that's sort of self-serving um, cause I feel like that's sort of my model. Yeah. I do love to read about this stuff. I do not own a robot arm of my own. Um, I've never personally operated one, but I have seen them operated and I think they're pretty amazing. Not just, you know, like, mechanically or sort of yeah. computationally like aesthetically i think they're really interesting and lovely and um and yeah and so the the um inclusion of lots of robotic arms and people talking about robotic arms and thinking about robotic arms in this book um was definitely it was driven just by my own yeah interest in did you have curiosity. your own technical advisor or was it all just <laughs> not, not not i mean that's the great thing about living the bay area and also just frankly the level of tech journalism that exists today yeah boy you can glean a lot and not just surface level stuff but like the really deep mechanics um just by reading on the internet and and kind of going down those rabbit holes youtube right like mm -hmm. anytime you want to go beyond these sort of description be like okay well what does it really look like or like how does it how does it swivel in space i hmm. mean there's a youtube video to show you it's amazing but then okay so to give away a little bit of the book uh she uh lois gets the sourdough starter she eventually starts making it herself she ends up in this kind of hidden farmer's market and part of her um, part of her store is like making the sourdough with a robotic arm, right? And core to that is cracking the eggs. Is that a real technical problem that exists? Um, that's a good question. I don't know for sure. I suspect, yeah, I call it like the egg problem. Yeah. Capital E, capital P. It's like, you know, like, like, and all these roboticists are like, yes, the all that stands between us and domination of all the world's economies it's is AGI than the, the egg problem. The egg problem. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and so I don't know. I kind of suspect that it is a problem. Um, it has been my perception. I, I could be wrong. This is probably where it fuzzes into, into fiction a little bit, but it has been my perception that, um, as, as a character in the book says, you know, there's something really appealing about these arms working in kitchens. Like, I mean, there's you're like, we will have done something when an arm can like make you an omelet or, mm -hmm. or do some of those kitchen tasks. But in fact, it's really challenging because that kitchen space is in fact really chaotic and unbounded. It's not one of these spaces that's sort of at least a normal kitchen, like a restaurant kitchen or a or home kitchen. McDonald's obviously is kind of kind of <laughs> is designed around sort of modularity and it's already pretty robotic to start with. Um, but those other kind of kitchens, those more organic kitchens, if you actually 
kind of do that thing of like defamiliarizing it and like looking, trying to look at everything in that space and the way it all works together with fresh eyes, you're like, that's fucking impossible. <laughs> it is just the angles and the slopes and everything's a weird shape and, and you can't recognize it all. And um, and I actually think that's wonderful. I think mm-hmm. that's lovely that it's like, oh man, what a what a magic show actually for a, a human cook to manage all those things at once and then reach over and just with one hand go and crack an egg. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, because you kind of, you spoke to it in the book around having two hands, basically. Like, I can't do that either. I've, I've tried it today, thinking yeah. like, oh, yeah, this will be easy. Just crack an egg with one hand. No, not so much. I will tell you uh, that you can learn. It is, and YouTube, once again, <laughs> YouTube <laughs> is your guide. Uh, I, I think it, in the book, if I remember right, I actually have, um, I have Lois learned by watching YouTube clips, um, including some that are so great. They're just, because um, again, truly everything, everything you need to know. Uh, and every, every task, no matter how small, is somewhere like documented on YouTube, and and often it'll be like these disembodied hands. Just it'll, the the video is like a minute long, and they just kind of show you and kind of demonstrate and do a test run, and then you know tap it on the edge, and it comes right open. And uh, I was skeptical at first, but in fact, it is not that hard. Hmm. Right on. Yeah. Um. What was the inspiration to do this book? Inspiration to do this book was, um, you know, it's actually a lot like. The other books I've done, it, it's really living here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, which I, I mean, truly think it sounds a little dorky, almost a little Pollyanna-ish, but um, but but truly, I just I, for all for all of its complexity and problems and everything else, I think it's just a really really inspiring place. I think it's a, a place where people do interesting things and end up le- leading these really interesting lives, and um, so yeah, over the last few years, I personally just as a human. Um, had gotten have gotten pulled more into the world of food yeah. first as an observer kind of just like someone curious about it and slowly as more of a participant although I'm still much more of a observer than a participant and uh, it just I mean this is what happens with everything I think it happens to journalists too you dip a toe and do something and you realize that it's just full of story I mean there's so much stuff there so many little dramas and mysteries and and mechanics that you can pretty easily turn into into plots and And so that's one of my questions is that your stories from penumbra to sourdough kind of explore the intersection between you know tech and startups and old crafts like bread making or you know book selling and so what about that interaction is particularly interesting to you well you know i think it's some it's it's at the conjunction between them and it, it the, the the honest answer might be annoyance i'm so routinely annoyed when the old and the new get framed as um an adversarial relationship mm-hmm. basically when people say or or versus um this happened and you know of course this happens with books and it was so much the sort of conversation especially around like ebooks and print books or like the internet and old school publishing like well which will it be you know which will triumph or like what is the road forward and I don't know why. I don't know if it's just temperamental or I've had good mentors and good advisors or, you know, I've had the opportunity to read um, smart thinkers for a long time. That has always seemed so nonsensical to me. Like it mm. seems to me like it is always and instead of the new thing replacing the old thing, it all just piles up in this like multi-car crash, um, nonviolent crash, um, glorious crash where everything is just, (laughs) everything is just kind of like, and the mountain is getting higher and higher and higher. And I don't know, I find that totally exciting because it means we get new things all the time, but we also get the benefit of crafts and ideas and obsessions that have been sort of compelling people for a really long time. So I think 
mostly, not mostly, but, but at least in, in large part, my books are intended as a sort of rebuttal to all the people who want to make us choose between the old and the new. I'm like, nope, I want both. <laughs> Option C. Yeah. Um, do you have a name for the genre that you exist in? Because I was talking to Kat before about this. And there seems to be, you know, increasing amounts, possibly infinite amounts of dystopian, uh, like Black Mirror type content. But you're kind of into this like positive satire genre. What do you call that? Oh, man. I don't know is yeah. the short answer. Some Someone did suggest a, a genre tag that I quite liked. Um, they said, oh, I think your books are sort of like puzzle fiction. <laughs> and I just like the sound of that. I'm not sure that it's an actual genre or even if my books are that puzzling. Um, but I was like, if I ever saw my books on a shelf labeled puzzle fiction, I would be very happy. They're, I mean, in my heart, they are sci-fi inflected mm -hmm. literary fiction. And all I mean by that is I try to take care with the sentences and just, you know, produce language and, you know, scenes that are like interesting, somewhat interesting to read and not just like glop on the page. Um, at the same time, there's no denying that my core genre as a reader is science fiction. Mm. And so that stuff just gets kind of metabolized and regurgitated, I guess, <laughs> or, or transformed. Um, I and, think and it's refreshing of, to yeah. see sort of like a non-dystopic, like there are funny, you know, elements like the slurry drinking that I definitely personally recognize. But but I think it's there, there I get an overall like positive sense about the world you're building. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, part of that for me is root and this is not necessarily um a sort of dystopian or not distinction, but part of that for me is rooted in the desire to have like narrators and other characters that you actually want to spend time with. And that's only because my most memorable experiences of reading from, you know, child early childhood onward have been ones where I finish the book, you know, close the back cover, and I missed the the mind that I was spending time with. Um, and there's a lot of good books that are, you know, compelling, engrossing, and rewarding that aren't that, where you're like, ooh, what a, what a bunch of creeps, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, what a bunch yeah. of broken humans. I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that, um, books and, and TV alike, um, probably, probably more that than anything else. Maybe it's actually for exactly that reason that I'm like, okay, cool. Other writers have got that on lock. <laughs> They've got the like, everyone is broken beat nailed down. And so maybe I'm going to do that thing that I like so much, which is, you know, voices that that you miss when it's right. No, I, I love it because um, I was talking once to a YC founder and he was saying, you know, if you talk to the vast majority of founders in Silicon Valley, they were influenced by things like Star Trek or Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. And these are all like pretty rosy visions of the future. Yeah. Whereas, you know, right now we have Black Mirror and all yeah. this like really dark stuff. And yeah. it's like, what is going to be built 20 years from now? And the young people reading this and watching this that's a good question, boy. You know, and I, I feel like that should almost be like a challenge. That would, that's a great sort of like challenge to the science fiction writers working today. And I, I think some of them, by the way, are meeting that cha challenge. I think people like Cory Doctorow, um, Annalie Newitz here in San Francisco is an amazing science fiction writer. They don't write dystopias. They don't write those sort of, you know, naive, Panglossian futures yeah. either. Like, and guess what? It all worked out great. <laughs> like, obviously, that's just like, that's not actually useful either. Um but yeah, to find a path through the the thorniness of real life and and power and you know the way that people inflict pain on other people, but still remain kind of like whoa excited about what's coming next. I yeah. mean, I do. I think that's 
I mean, it is, it's what I like to read and, and I hope it's what people are, I hope they're still producing it. Well, I mean, even um, in a couple of interviews I read with you and listened to, you were influenced by children's books. Oh, yeah. When you're writing, uh, you, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, you specifically <laughs> mentioned. Well, yeah, for sourdough in particular, there is a great genre of, I yeah. mean, this is even, this, the genre is very specific. Talk about specific, specific little slices of books. This is the sort of like runaway mutant food genre. <laughs> you've got your Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, you've got your Streganona. Stinky Cheese Man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lesser known, lesser known book called The Dutch of the duchess bakes a cake also great um and basically it's like all like food that you know grows out of control becomes giant and uh, there's clearly something that like resonates deeply with the the child's mind because it's like you could totally populate a shelf with those books oh man and were you reading these beforehand or you're just like mm, i think this needs to go a little further so. i you, i can't say that those were the direct influence for this book that was more of a kind of hook shot where after writing this book i was like oh wait you know i think i think this has a lineage the the more direct influence for for that kind of stuff in sourdough that kind of like runaway yeah. food vibe was um truly it's all the scholarship that's been done in the last few years you know five years maybe going on a decade about microbes and the microbiome and just the daily near daily wonder of like oh let's see what's in the news today microbes do what <laughs> <laughs> like they what huh they talk to each other and they're controlling my and there's how many and we don't even know i mean it's like i truly it's amazing i that's got to be such a fun discipline to be in now and and for the last little while and um yeah so that was i was like Yes, I need to put some characters in this book that are not people, mm, uh, but mm -hmm. microbes or microbial communities and try to try to give them some personality on the page. And did you think um, at any point you wanted to make an app as well? What, for this book, for Sourdough? Yeah, well, cause, you know, you're talking about staying around with these characters. And I uh, I used Fish a long time ago because when I actually sat next to Patrick Moberg while he was building it, as I was working out of Betaworks. So, oh, my gosh, that's yeah, amazing. You got to get out of my life, man. But um I had just been wondering, like, if you had considered building some kind of extension. I, I had not considered it for this book. Um, I, you know, there's that thing you hear where people say, like, okay, you have to come up with a story, and then you find the right vessel for that story. Like, does this story want to be a book or a video game or a HBO series? Whatever. Uh, I think that is wrong. I do not think that's actually how good things get produced. Um, so if you ever hear someone say that, you can tell them, Robin Stone thinks you're <laughs> full of shit. Uh, I think it's, at least for me, I, and I'll speak, I'll speak actually just for myself, it's almost exactly the opposite. You get interested first in a format, mm. either just, you know, for, out of pure kind of like childlike interest, like, oh, that comic book was so good, or like, wow, what an amazing movie, or like even like that YouTube video was so weird and like creepy, whatever it is. And then at some point you start to sort of feel that itch of like, oh, maybe I could make one too. You know, maybe I could play in that sandbox. You can trace everything I've ever made, whether it's a book or a weird digital experiment, to that impulse of, mm. of, of truly starting with some form that I admired and thought was awesome and then trying to figure out like what, what kind of fits in that box. So that's all to say that um, this book came out of a sort of a book-shaped impulse and uh yeah, I think the next app is going to come out of an app-shaped impulse. Or... Have you had any impulses since? Like, what's the next form? Yeah, I de no, I definitely have. I've had, I mean, too many. The problem is you're like, ah, there's so many cool things. I will tell you that I'm, I'm kind of still in, I feel this, like, tension. It's totally unresolved. I don't have, like, a plan, a theory, a solution, or anything like that. 
But the app thing right now, it's it's super, well, you know, I'll, I'll make it really practical. This is what happened. I made this app called Fish mm-hmm. um, several years ago, totally on a lark. Um, I mean, because I kind of, admi- I admired the iPhone screen in particular, the like lack of a row of browser tabs across the top or like other windows tiled in the background, you know, like it's, it is the, it is the case that often, more often than on laptops and other things, people will just do one thing on an iPhone at a time. And that's actually really lovely. Anyways, thought I'd take advantage of that. Made this app. It was great. Um, well-received. I had a lot of fun making it. Years go by. The newest version of iOS, um, something has changed. And now that like the binary that I uploaded to Apple all those years ago will not run anymore. It was it was getting a little funky, like it looked sort of weird on the newer iPhones, but you could still run it. Now I am alerted by Apple via an email. It's not going to run anymore. Because I am a writer and a tinkerer and not a professional software developer, I could not immediately find the source code <laughs> to this app. And I rooted around and I like dug out some old laptops and I booted them up and I was I just searched everything. I checked my email. I was like, surely I must have emailed it to someone. I can't find it anywhere. So I think it's gone, and that bums me out. <laughs> sad. It is sad. Um, so I, I fear, uh, as of this moment, I, I, my current thought is that Fish is lost to the world, uh, or at least users of iOS, iOS 11 and above. <laughs> and, and, but there's actually something, I mean, that's just my sort of carelessness, which is a bummer. But there's actually something embedded in that, which is you make these digital things, and unlike a book where once you bind it up and put it on a shelf, even if it gets forgotten, even if it gets damaged or, you know, whatever, it's like still, it boots mm-hmm. somehow. You can, you can like compile and run that printed book basically forever. And boy, that is just not the case with digital stuff. Like the ground shifts under your feet and suddenly the platform you built it on goes out mm-hmm. of business or, you know, the OS gets upgraded and you're like, the APIs are different. And that's unsettling. And to, to sort of figure out how to navigate that, how to still embrace the fun of those digital experiments, but like not sign up for infinite ongoing maintenance for like an ever increasing number of projects. I just don't know. So that's, it's one of the things I'm really thinking about right now. I think it's a, it's very distinct from the way that frankly, people in like companies would mm-hmm. think about making and maintaining apps. But there's plenty of people out there who aren't people like me who are kind of just tinkerers, experimenters, um, writers, and artists. And I think it's kind of a funny moment for that kind of work right now. Well, if you actually look around at most people who work in the tech industry, a lot of the work does fall away. Mm -hmm. Like if you spend two years working at Facebook or Twitter or Google, a lot of your work is gone six months after you leave. Totally. So maybe the question is, how do you give something like an everlasting life online? Right. Right. I think it is such a big question. I mean, there's Stability comes, it seems, at least partially with time. I mean, if I was going to make a web page, say, and not a fancy one, like a real simple one, and then if I took that web page and I made sure to kind of have it hosted in a few different places, but it, but it's a it's an experiment. Say mm-hmm. it's a story and it's presented in some cool way and there's a few kind of interactive bits in, in JavaScript, say, you know, as the page proceeds. And I host one on my website and maybe I host one somewhere else and I also um, make sure that it's indexed by the Internet Archive. I still don't feel as good about that as I do about a printed book on a shelf, but I feel pretty good about it. I mean, I think there's like, you're like, okay, web pages have been around for what, like yeah. 30 years now? You're like, finally, we can kind of count on this technology continuing to be legible and accessible. But at the same time, you're like, that's not the most exciting thing. Like you don't, I can't make a cool mobile 
I don't know, like AR enabled experience with a web page, really not in the way that I would want to. And so there's the, basically, I, th I think there is this trade off and maybe it's really natural between that sort of like bleeding edge coolness and interestingness and that sort of stability. And I don't know. I don't know if it's just like the archive or I don't know. You want to be able to share with people. Well, it, a lot of now is just falling into the hands of basically archivists in museums. Yeah. So you right. see it, it's happening. I think Rhizome's doing a project yeah. to preserve digital art. Yeah. But you basically are like buying, you know, a Dell from 96 <laughs> yeah. and, and like booting it. Yeah. <laughs> and like air gapping it and making sure that the automatic like OS updates never Totally. Run. Like do not connect to the internet. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. It will. Somebody, somebody, I mean, yeah, the museums have those collections. I, I would love to imagine there's someone somewhere that's just like, yes, I have like the um the menagerie every computer every os like what's that you need a mac sc running os uh, 7.2 i've got one of those boop <laughs> power it up well, it's, it's a big thing in TV, too. We did a, um, a podcast with Corridana from Mr. Robot. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because their show is only set two years ago, but they're still trying to keep, like, a consistent dateline. So they're actually having to get apps from, like, two years ago and then to do the screenshots and the simulations. And they're like, we can't even... You can't find, like, Facebook from two years right, ago. Right, right, right. That's, yeah. that's admirable, first of all. Yeah. That is some. That is some, like... 21st century Kubrick attention yeah. to nerdy detail. <laughs> yes. I really appreciate that. But it is, it's right. It's it's a weird time. I um I would not bet against everything that we're pouring into kind of the vast digital box, you know, like everything. The Facebook updates, the Instagram photos, all of it basically being gone in 2060. 2050 like i hope that's not the case and i mean it seems hard to believe because it's like everybody's everything is in these systems but based on just what we know and the way the patterns we've seen already i like if we were if we were like okay place your bets i would be like and that will all be deleted <laughs> yeah speaking of deleting uh craig was telling me something that i hadn't heard before that you have written a script that deletes your tweets? Oh, yeah, wow. definitely. And can you, how did that come about and why? Oh, yeah, oh, no, no. So this is very, this is very um, clear cut to me at least. Uh, I I still love Twitter, even though Twitter is so fraught and so complicated. I started using it like a lot of people kind of around 2009, 2010. I actually worked at Twitter for a couple of years too. Um, and it was very, at that time, like everyone who worked at Twitter was like on Twitter deeply. And it was, it was really pure fun and I think it was because it was so much more casual. It was the era of like grabbing a sandwich with at Craig and at Cat, you know? Yeah. Which is so you're like, oh, we were children then. Uh, so things have changed a lot, but I but for me at least, I think there are some ways to kind of anchor it in that other feeling. I like to think of Twitter as not like sort of an ongoing a uh, transcript of a congressional hearing, you know, to which we can always return and be like, well, actually, Katz, four years ago, you said this, and that was bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But rather as like a huge, weird, interlinked conversation in a cafe somewhere, you know, people making bold claims and referring to things and, and saying nice things, complimenting each other, but then all of it just kind of like fading into the night air and it's gone. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't record your cafe conversation for right. posterity I mean, if you would, you, you maybe some people do, but that's weird. That's clearly like sort of strangely antisocial. I record like, everything and transcribe it and <laughs> index my whole life. I don't go. know what you're talking you about. Go. Yeah, that's like, that's like that's a whole different conversation. But it is you, you, it is like 
that's actually quite strange. And yet it's the default for Twitter of like recording everything and sort of keeping it forever. So that's all to say my very tiny kind of lever against that uh, that system um, and my way of kind of keeping it something like a cafe conversation with the words just fading away is to delete my tweets on the regular. And oh, I can report that it feels great. Mm-hmm. That, that does sound quite refreshing. Yeah. Were there, yeah. Were there any like greatest hits? You're like, ah, sad to see it go. It was, but, you know, what? yes, and it is a good. Um, it's it's a healthy thing. You kind yeah. of contend for a moment with your own vanity, and you're like, oh, but there's just so many faves, and but then it's gone. And you're like, I didn't need those faves. It's it truly, it's healthy. It's a the burn. It's like a scalding sort of cleanse. So this brings me to one of my questions. I think I first came across you um, when I was reading Snark Market. Um, And so I loved it because, you know, you would, you know, post an essay and then it would kick off a sort of discussion or debate below it. And sometimes they were sort of contentious and and you came out reading the essay feeling one way. And then after reading the comments, you're like, oh, no, but I see these other sides of it as well. And uh, that died in what 2015. I mean, it was like a lot of blogs. It was just a sort of slow tail off. I mean, I'm sure you have never done this. It would actually make me sad to do it. I'm sure you could graph the post frequency and it would be a real kind of actually a slow ramp into this sort of bulging sort of heyday and then a slow tail off. And furthermore, I'll bet if you took that and compared it to like um, average hours employed per week by all snark market authors it would be a perfect sort of they would they would fit together like puzzle pieces that makes sense i was gonna ask if twitter killed it i mean it will it did it did in part boy i mean that's just a whole thing a whole melancholy story to kind of unspool the story of blogs the rise and fall of blogs um because i think people who who kind of came up during that time not only as bloggers, but kind of as writers more broadly, because it was, it was this amazing way to kind of cross train and just force yourself to like write something in public every day, even if you didn't like have it all perfectly locked down or even or even know exactly what you thought. You're like, well, I'll find out what I think by like starting to write this little blog post in, in my movable type installation. <laughs> um, it, was, it was truly lovely, um, but yeah, there's no question. It was killed by Twitter and Facebook. And just really the sense that people moved on. I mean, the reason you wrote a post is because you knew people would read it. In some cases, you knew very specifically who would read it. Like, I remember, in some ways, the greatest pleasure of writing for that blog is I understood our position exactly in, like, the food chain of blogs. We were not at the bottom. And, in fact, some of the blogs we were reading were, like, closer to the bottom, just in terms of number of readers. They were like super weird, specific, <laughs> niche like strange little blogs. And and you would, when you found one that you liked, you'd add it to your Google Reader, long lamented. But I mean, that the, the loss of Google Reader was another, true. I mean, truly, it was one of the, the, the nails in the coffin of blogging. Um, but you'd add it to your Google Reader, and that became part of your like secret stockpile. And I remember talking to people about feeds, and they would be cagey. They'd be like, oh, whatever, it's just a, just a, Scientist feed I found somewhere. It doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll blog the good stuff. Anyway, just you, you'd find interesting things. You'd write about it. Snark Market was not top tier. I mean, there's many sort of tiers above us, but there were a couple much bigger blogs in particular. And just, you know, through the experience of linking something and writing a little about it, and then maybe eight hours pass or a day passes, and then you see it at that next blog up, I began to understand very clearly. I was like, I knew our, our role in that system, in that sort of economy of ideas. And it was really cool. It just felt awesome to like have a place. 
But um, as those readers go away, like as basically it's like there started to be these holes in that mesh. And then I think the parts kind of shear off and then disintegrate entirely. And now, I mean, you open up the, it's WordPress now. Mm -hmm. we, did, we did upgrade <laughs> sometime between 2008 and 2017. And uh, you open up the little composition window and you're like, no one is going to read this. Or if they do, it'll be only because I essentially recreate it or give it a new home on Facebook or Twitter. Mm. Do you have strong opinions on 280 characters? <laughs> I, I do. I do now. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I have to just always remember this. My first um, experience with like user rage, uh, being an enraged user, that is to say, <laughs> was in college. Um, that was my first experience with high speed internet. And I loved the New York Times website which was, I mean, it was probably designed to be like 500 pixels wide at that time. It was just this <laughs> tiny little thing, very proto, you know, web experience. But I loved it. And in the early days, one of the things they did is they actually, you know, to keep their timesness, they rendered all the headlines as images in like the Times uh, font. Because there weren't like web fonts and they couldn't do it justice, they thought. And so they rendered this as images. And I thought that was amazing. I was like, <laughs> of course, they're images. It's so beautiful. It looks like a newspaper. So at one point, uh, very reasonably, they decided eh, this is a little weird and kind of rigid and inflexible and probably, you know, is wasting people's bandwidth. So they switched to just normal text links. And it was like Times New Roman. It wasn't a pretty font because, again, no web fonts yet. So they switched it. And I wrote an email. I was probably a junior in college. I was like, to oh, whom it may concern. Yeah. To whom it may concern. You clearly don't understand your own brand. You've made a terrible mistake with these ugly text links so dumb literally 48 hours later i was like oh man this page loads a lot faster now this is great <laughs> <laughs> it was just a good grounding early experience with like come on yeah. things change and you're gonna be okay and so i have um retained that consciousness to this day and i was not super upset about 280 characters even though i of course like many people i appreciated the sort of the sort of haiku constraints of 140 um, but I, uh, oh man, I love it. I just, I just keep typing. It's oh, great. Yeah. And someone made the point. I thought this was actually very super, super sharp. There's, you know, a lot of different ways to think about it and talk about it. Someone made the point that with 280 characters, it actually gives you enough space. It's not that much space, but it gives you enough space to do something you almost never could with 140 characters on their own, which is to present one idea, kind of like set up the thing and then turn it around. Hmm. react to it you could basically say well a lot of people say x but i think y or you could say like i used to think x and now i think y like there's enough space for like two ideas to be in dialogue with each other whereas before and after this this it was like an academic who who kind of pointed this out i was like oh yeah that's right before all tweets were like blah <laughs> here's the thing here's the thing i mean even if it was a nice thing or a funny thing they were just like blah but now a tweet there is enough space for it to be kind of a like Hmm? Or like, what about? And that might be healthy, I think. Hmm. I don't know if any fewer people will be taken out of context, but it makes sense. I do appreciate the the little circle like uh, progress thing rather than the countdown. Right. I thought that was really slick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. It's, you, it's, we've been, and it is, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, right. I've been playing a weird game this whole time. And I didn't even realize, <laughs> yeah. like, and as soon as the numbers go away, you're like, didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, um, so uh, what are you excited about right now? Are you thinking like, all right, I mean, maybe you've already sold a book and I don't even know it. Um, well, what are you into? 
Boy, I'm into a lot of things. I will say that uh, the machine learning stuff continues to preoccupy me. I think in part because I think there's an art, there continues to be an arbitrage opportunity for artists or kind of art adjacent people. So much of the energy is focused on super practical and like economically valuable applications, <laughs> which is fine. And I totally, you know, I truly like, I cannot wait for self-driving cars to come fully online and for robot arms to be doing, you know, all sorts of tasks and all that. Um, but uh, the creative applications are really, really interesting. And I think for people who have uh, even like just the, a fingernails grip on the technology and can kind of mm -hmm. hack their way through the code and also have, again, maybe the temperament to think it's interesting and not like, ugh, like rise of the machines. Um, it's like totally wide open, like just blue sky, interesting stuff. So I would definitely like to try to write a novel and I'm in the process of trying to write a novel that has as kind of part of its text the product of some of these machine learning systems. Um, but it's, you know, it's tricky because you want it to be good. You don't want it to just be a sort of parlor trick. Like, did you read the machine learning novel? <laughs> no, but I'm aware of it. And it's very interesting. Like, you don't want that. You actually want to produce something that's yeah. good and like worth people's time and like interesting and worthwhile to read. But you want to do it or at least in part using these tools that kind of no one has ever used before so it's a cool challenge mm. have you tried magenta yet um i well magenta is not really like a thing thing it's like the suite of different tools right um they are really focused on sound like mostly music stuff it's really cool i, I actually think i think they're one of the, sort of the few people slash groups that are doing it right you know, people on the podcast people on the podcast you know i'm making air quotes <laughs> doing it right and that's only to say they're um super competent technically and interested in kind of pushing the state of the art in that in that sort of very cody sort of academic -y sense but they're also very clearly just interested in like aesthetics mm -hmm. like they they measure you can tell that they're they're measuring their own judging their own output not unlike, well, we've achieved a new state of the art of 2.7 bits on the loss you're like cool is that better they're like they're like looking at the and they're looking at the sort of the qualitative like well is it does it sound interesting is it lovely could it be lovely and they're also this is actually the best part they're building tools right mm -hmm. it's not just raw code they're like building these things for people to use and very clearly like learning how to use them themselves kind of in public in real time and i just admire the hell out of that whenever yeah. i see it i think it ends up offending a lot of artists because so many of these uh image recreation things in particular are like style content transfer see right style doesn't matter we right. can just throw it on anything right, right right exactly yeah yeah it is and there's something about that stuff that is i mean it's it's exciting in its own way but it, it is at the same time a little tasteless and a little bit like Oh, really? That's what you think it is? You think it's just like, you think you think Van Gogh is swirly trees? Okay. Um, come to the museum with me. I, there's some things we need to talk about. Um, but it is like, I think making something that you can learn, that you can use is kind of the key. There is a lot of this code, um, including some of the, the style transfer stuff, where you kind of like the only way to use it is to kind of say, run, like do your thing, tell me when you're done which is, that's a good starting point. I do think that the challenge uh, or the, the kind of the next step that gets really interesting is learning to make tools or, or even instruments that like a person can get better at, mm -hmm. which is not easy to do. I mean, people try to invent instruments and often like musical instruments and often you're like, 
there's just not enough depth there. You're like, uh, yeah, I can play hot cross buns and like, and that's all. And you're like, this is no viola or like, this is no, you know, synth, you know, cool Moog synthesizer or whatever. Um, and I think that's coming for the machine learning stuff or it should be. Hmm. What, what do you think's missing right now? Well, I mean, I, I mean, this is a little self aggrandizing, but I'll describe one of the projects that I did, which I think is a tiny, tiny step in that direction. So there's these neural networks that um, operate on text and they can essentially learn these statistical models of text such that given the beginning of a sentence, they can just keep writing it for you, right? And they end up, of course, be, of course being sort of wacky and nonsensical, but tr they really do learn something. Like if you train this neural network on all of Harry Potter and you start a sentence like, the boy walked into the, it'll say, castle where he picked up his wand and like you know <laughs> cast the following spell like it really and like and in the style of jk rowling like in the really actually in an impeccable sort of imitation of the style of jk rowling or whoever so um you've been able to kind of do that on the command line for a while and there's you know people have written blog posts about like oh look i wrote some moby dick or here's some <laughs> weird fake shakespeare it was all really cool i took that stuff kind of changed the way it works a little bit i thought hard about the corpus i wanted to use like what i wanted it, what style I wanted it to be learning. But then I also built a little plugin for the Atom text editor, which is really easy to extend. You just like kind of designed to have things modded onto it. And so now, instead of it being this kind of command line thing, you're typing in a window, just as you would, as you'd be like composing a manuscript, and you hit tab the way you would to like auto-complete something on That's the command line. Great. And a little wheel spins for just a second, and then it goes pop, and it shows you the completion. But it's not just, you don't have to just take what the computer gives you, you just as you can with autocomplete on the, on the command line, you can arrow up and arrow down through other <laughs> alternatives. Huh. And so, but I think this is really important. It's like the core, the core interesting thing is the weird sort of wonderful output of this machine, right? But at the same time, you acknowledge that having a human kind of curate it and shape it and form it and just be in the loop and be learning how to use it is just as important. Mm. So, and it's, and it's, turns out, I mean, artistic value aside it's really fun it's actually like a really fun oh, yeah, thing to totally. play with yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it's you like, see it on twitter with the autocomplete keyboard all the time yeah, exactly it's like just tap the next thing yeah, and yeah totally totally yeah. um to take a harry potter tangent for a second early on in the book you talk about our generation wanting to be sorted is that a like a strong opinion or a throwaway line uh no it is that's funny that's a funny thing for you to mention um yeah so, so the whole line is uh the character says you know i'm a child of Hogwarts and like like everyone else in my generation I'm a child of Hogwarts and more than anything I think we just want to be sorted when so. I read that I was like that's very true of me at least in I my early it. 20s I was yeah. like just someone tell me what to do tell you exactly tell me what club I belong to give me my give me my shawl my cardigan in the right colors and let's let's just get this over with yeah so um so I do I do um believe it I think there's something to it um However, more than anything else, that line has been a window for me into like what reading is in the 21st century, hmm. because in part because it's near the beginning of the book, in part because it's like a very yeah. hashtag relatable, you know, it's not about the book. You can kind of, you can pull it out very easily and it kind of stands on its own. And because apparently it, it resonated with a lot of people, people have taken so many pictures of that line and that page on Twitter, on Instagram. I could I could compile you a gallery of like hundreds of snapshots from around the country in the world of people and like and then with the caption just like, you know, quote of the day or like, oh man, Robin Sloan really gets me or like, I got to admit this one hit really close to home or whatever. They're kind of they're putting their little spin on it. But just to see the way like 
a book becomes a social object like that. And it's this thing for them to both, of course, just like everything else on social media, they're like announcing that they're reading a book, which is like pretty cool. Um, they're, they're sharing something that resonated with them. They're promoting the book a little bit, which is cool. I definitely know. I'm like, yes, and be sure to say what book that is from. <laughs> Sourdough by Robin Sloan from MCD, published on, you know, October or whatever. Um, so it's cool. It's actually been like almost like, you know how they put like radioactive dye Totally. In your blood to like kind of like mm, trace yeah. whatever. That's been my like dye tracer through. Is there one later in the book? There are a couple things. There are a couple things that people like on Kindle highlights. You can see what people liked. But honestly, there's no other line that had that like that became like truly like a social object that that leapt off the page and then just kind of went yeah. off on its own. And it's so internet. fascinating because it yeah. doesn't really tie back into the no. the rest of the book for the most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I it's mean, it's just, just, it stands on its own. Yeah, and it's really, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's the starting point. It's how this character feels before she even gets to San Francisco or embroiled in this world of food or learns any of this weird stuff. But um, yeah, apparently there's a lot of people in the world who feel the same way that this character does as the story opens. Have you seen a long form fiction change as social media like influences it. Kat and I were talking about this in the context of museums, right? You know, you have these like Instagram museums basically. Are there like Instagram books with all these like zingers oh, intentionally? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I So I don't, I don't know for sure. That's a, it's a big question actually and a really interesting one. I don't really think so, not yet. And I think that's for a couple of reasons if I had to kind of just, just guess. One is um, the truth is that the readership for books, um, I mean, it's obviously diverse and like there's a lot of young people who read books. There's also a lot of older people who read books. And I think there's a certain kind of point at which, and it's of course not like these people aren't on Facebook. They are like everyone's on Facebook, but I think they're also kind of not. They're like people who just mm. relate to the world and get information and kind of select their media in a different way. I don't know if it's a more old fashioned way exactly, but it's just different. They like go to the library and get a stack of books, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that I love like publishing books and, and reaching this audience this way. I think it's like really special to be able to talk to them in a way that like no one on Twitter ever will because it's just kind of, you know, sort of separated worlds um, with not a lot of bridges between them. So I think that's part of it. And then I, I do think that people read books for different reasons than they use social media still. That could change. That could change over time. But um, yeah, I think books, the good books really do, um, they're that sort of sense of engrossment. Is that even a word? Yeah. Yeah. Engrossing. They're engrossing. I'll count it. <laughs> yeah. So Epic 2014, what's your explanation? Boy, that's, well, it's kind of the original media experiment for me. I mean, there's been so many along the way, like apps and web projects and, you know, weird books and things, other things like that. Um, Epic 2014, boy, it was an artifact of its time. It was 2003 to in 2004, I guess, is when it finally got published. I was working at a place called the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was kind of like journalism school and think tank. Really, really cool institution. Uh, my colleague there uh, was another young journalist or sort of journalist in training named Matt Thompson, who has gone on to become the executive editor of The Atlantic Monthly. So, wow. <laughs> Little did I realize. Um, no, that's not true. Actually, I did suspect that that was probably going to be his path um, even back then. Uh, so we're down in the computer lab with one. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't quite a Mac SE with uh, whatever System 7, but they were some funky, you know, translucent iMacs down in the computer lab. 
And we were frustrated because we, at that time, it's like, this is the rise of the blogs. It's really like the, the early blog boom. And we were part of it. We thought it was so exciting. We thought all this stuff was so exciting. And it did not seem to us like the people we were talking to in the newspaper industry, primarily then, like saw what we saw. And we tried to explain it. We tried to like give presentations with charts and things like that. And still just like we were getting these like glazed over looks. We we're like, come on. Like, first of all, these people need to understand this. And second, it's it's exciting. Like there's like this is this is if not good news, it's like very interesting news. So this is where it's almost a little cliche. We're like, how can we communicate this vividly to people by telling a story in flash? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well that's why it was an artifact of its time. We did. Yeah. We we're like we we're like okay, we're gonna make this video. It's gonna be this sort of faux future documentary that tells the the future history of media from 2004 to 2014. Wow. With all this weird stuff that happened, you know, consolidation and the New York Times goes out of business and there's just like all this customized news and it's 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 all feels very antique now. In fact, but um, it was radical a radical vision in 2004. <laughs> But but the great constraint, of course, is that in 2004, you could not post video on the internet. There was like there was no place to do it, and if by chance you did find some server space, the resulting bandwidth bill would like crush you. And there were these stories, almost like urban legends, of like, oh yeah, Craig posted a video one time, some people watched it. He had to sell his house. (laughs) (laughs) So the bandwidth uh, efficient way of sharing moving pictures was flash so we authored this whole funky thing in flash it was this like strange stuttering animation and it was it was actually ah the 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 web we have lost like the the lamented early web even the flash video was kind of like a bit much because it became very popular it was like Mm -hmm. a weird early viral web hit um especially kind of among news people and it was a weird kind of feeling the burn and the server would go down sometimes so some friendly people with web servers around the world would send these emails like, hello, my name is Ivo. I'm in the Netherlands. Uh, I would be happy to mirror your Flash movie. (laughs) And we were like, yes, here, here's the link. Please mirror it. So on the main page, it was, it was just beautiful. It was like this United Nations of hosting. And there's this list of like, (laughs) here's some other mirrors, you know, and you click and you'd go to this sort of other copy of the page on some server in the Netherlands. Oh man. It was amazing. That's so cool. Have you thought about doing another one? You know, uh, every so often someone asks, most recently it was 2014, which was kind of the crux of the, of the movie that we made more than a decade ago. And we got some, some, you know, feelers from people, including like media companies that were like, it'll be a big thing. It'll be like our cool, we'll like produce it. It'll be rad. And, you know, we'll pay you for it and all this stuff. And uh, both of us had the same instinct, which was like, it was so, that project was so guileless. It was so, I mean, it was pure. Yeah. We were just like these two 20-something people who were like, people seem, people don't seem to see this as clearly as we do. Perhaps if we tell a story. And we had no other expectations for it beyond that. And you just can't, if you would do something like that and it works and it's successful, that is 100% your signal to close that Shut box, it <laughs> put it on the shelf, say what luck and move on to something else. Fair enough. (laughs) But so Penumbra came out, how many, five? Yeah, 2012, yep. And so I think, you know, working, you know, I was in, you know, at Wired and then, yeah, yeah, and then in New York and I think around the 2012 timeframe, like there was so much positivity about tech, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in the press. And so it's changed a lot. So how did that like change in tone in the coverage of tech, like impact the way that you talk, like write about it now? That's a great question. I will let you in on something. Um, That shift was happening. Of course, it's ongoing. Things are always in flux. 
that particular shift, that sort of darkening almost of the tint was happening even as I was kind of wrapping up the manuscript for Penumbra. And I remember very vividly the last few passes in the summer of 2012 before it came out that fall, going through and changing a few lines that, I mean, the book is very, it is very kind of like magical Silicon Valley wonderland. There were a few lines in that original manuscript that were even a bit much then in 2012. And I was like, people are going to think I'm lame and just like, and, and, <laughs> and again, and naive if I include this sort of line. And so I, I even, even at that time and even at that point in the process, I was like, hmm, I need to kind of calibrate this a little differently, which is, and that's the risk. It's the, it's the fun part, but also kind of the risk and the burden of trying to write fiction that's set now in our world today. I mean, there's definitely like, you understand why people write historical novels because there's like yeah. a refuge and like, <laughs> it's not going to, I mean, it, there's other challenges, but at least it won't kind of shift underneath my feet. Uh, I definitely had to change the tone um, for the new one, for Sourdough. Um, part of it was just just kind of natural, like the way I think about it, of course, has changed over time, like everyone else. We're just, um, yeah, it's just all about kind of power and and the way these things have, have their role in our lives have changed. So I think any like thinking human um, has a different relationship to it now. And then, of course, I always wanted to just like not do another version of the same postcard from Silicon Valley, but like send a different one. So yeah, the the character in this new one, she starts the book in a much darker place. Like she's working at this robot factory that wants to change the world and like transform the conditions of human labor, but their labor that they are undertaking to do all that is like pretty intense. And she's frustrated and strung out and not eating well, um, definitely not drinking enough water. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's, yeah, that's so, so in some ways I wanted to, I wanted to make it feel like a, a dispatch from Silicon Valley today without taking the, I think easy route of just like burn it all down that you see elsewhere. Cause I don't think that's, well, first of all, other people have got that covered. <laughs> they <laughs> other people are fully on the burn it all down beat and that's good. Um, I mean, it's, it's, we need them out there. Um, so maybe I could do a little something different. That's great. All right. Thanks for coming in, Robin. Thanks for the invitation. It's a real treat. Cool. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right. See you next week.